Thank you for listening to the podcast of Bible Baptist Church. Please visit our website at www.southbaybbc.org for more information. Today we're taking a look at Judas Iscariot and the name uh, Judas has uh, kind of taken on a connotation because of Judas Iscariot, but really Judas is a wonderful name. Judas comes from the Old Testament name that we know of as Judah. And so Judah was a, is a great name, you know, you have the nation, you have the son, you have the line of the tribe of Judah. David was of the tribe of Judah. It's a great name. A lot of people were named Judah or Judas. In fact, two of the 12 disciples were Judas. It was a very common, popular name. And uh, he's called here in the Bible, Judas Iscariot. And Iscariot simply indicates where he was from. Sometimes you hear certain names. Uh, like one of the names that comes to mind, uh, family names, is De Leon, right? De means from, and Leon is like a city or an, a, a, a part of the country. And so you have some of these names, oh, here is a man from that city. And that's really all that Judas Iscariot means. Judas is from the city of Carioth. And we know that his name was Simon. And so here in this passage, we've already read about how Judas was the one who would betray Jesus Christ. And we know about what Judas did. We know about the betrayal. I'm sure all of us are familiar with that. But this betrayal is in particular so notable because of how much Judas had already gone through before he betrayed him. Because we know that Judas was chosen above some of the other disciples. If you go back to Luke chapter number 6, I think the verses will be on their screen. It says, and when it was day, he called unto him his disciples, and, one of, and of them he chose twelve whom also he named apostles. And he goes through the list of the apostles at the very end of verse 16, and he goes, and Judas, the brother of James, and Judas Iscariot, which also was the traitor. So here you have a group of disciples. When we think about disciples, we often think about the 12, right? We think about Peter, James, and John. But there were other disciples than just those 12. There were other disciples that were following Jesus at the time. And so there's a group of disciples that are there with Jesus. Jesus prays all night, and in the morning, he picks out 12 to especially be close to him, that would follow him more closely than the others. And Judas Iscariot was one of those 12. He was a disciple that was chosen above some of the other disciples. Not only that, he endured when others gave up. In John chapter 6, verse 66, the Bible says, From that time many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. Then said Jesus unto the twelve, Will ye also go away? Jesus had given some hard sayings, and some of the other disciples were like, I don't, I don't know if I could keep going with this. I don't know if I could keep following him. I don't know if I could keep believing these things. And they began to leave from following Jesus Christ. And so Jesus, you know, continues on, other disciples are leaving, and he stops and he turns around and he looks at the 12 that are still there, and he says, everybody else is leaving, you want to leave as well? And Judas was still there, he was, he was continuing to be faithful. He was also trusted above others. In John 13, we see, for some of them thought, because Judas had the bag, that Jesus had said unto him, buy those things which we have need of against the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So from this verse, we know that Judas was kind of the treasurer accountant of the disciples. He was in charge of the finances. And as you could imagine, you would want somebody that you trusted 
to handle the finances, right? You know, and we know that there was, there was potentially a lot of money. There was a time when Jesus said, hey, why don't we feed all of these people before he fed the 5,000? And uh, one of the disciples said, is 200 penny worth enough to feed all of these people? 200 penny worth sounds like to us, $2. But to them, 200 penny worth was 200 days wages. It was, it was a significant amount of money. And Judas was the one that was put in charge. He was trusted by the other disciples. Nobody said, whoa, 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 Judas in charge of the, I don't know if we can trust that guy. No, every single one of them thought, yeah, he's a trustworthy individual. If anybody could be trusted with the finances of us, then yeah, Judas, I, I believe Judas would be the man. So Judas was picked as one of the 12. He was faithful beyond some of the other disciples that left. He was chosen as the treasurer of the group. And yet, he ended in tragedy. He betrayed Jesus Christ. In Luke 22, we see, Then entered Satan into Judas, surnamed Iscariot, being of the number of the twelve. And he went his way and communed with the chief priests and captains how he might betray him unto them. And they were glad and covenanted to, him, to give him money. And he promised and sought opportunity to betray him unto them in the absence of the multitude. Later in the chapter, it says, And while he yet spake, behold, a multitude, and he that was called Judas, one of the twelve, went before them and drew near unto Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said unto him, Judas, betrayest thou the Son of Man with a kiss? We know that later, soon after that, he died in Matthew chapter 27. Then Judas, which had betrayed him, when he saw that he was condemned, when he saw that Jesus was condemned, repented himself, and brought again the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priest, saying, I have sinned in that I have betrayed the innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? See thou to that. They're saying, that's, that's, what do we care about? You know, we did our job, you take care of that end. And he cast down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. When you compare some of the verses that we read earlier about Judas being picked, about Judas being the treasurer, and then you read some of these verses, you can't help but ask yourself, is this even the same guy? Right? Doesn't it sound like almost like we're talking about two different people here? One who would betray Jesus and, and uh, hang himself, and another one that was trusted to handle all of the finances? It sounds like almost like there's two different people that are both named Judas, and, and uh, they just happen to have the same name. But when you see this, we can't help but ask the question, how could someone spend so much time near Jesus and end up like that? How could somebody be close to Peter and James and John? How could somebody see all of the miracles of Jesus? How could somebody be participating in the service of the ministry there? How could somebody do all of those things and still end up like that? How could somebody who was you know, uh, faithful with all of the other disciples. Uh, just everywhere that Peter, James, and John, and all of the other disciples went, Judas was there too. And Judas was faithful through those three years of ministry. And yet, he ended up like that. How is that possible? And I think the answer is quite simple. Who Judas was on the outside was not who he was on the inside. In a way, there really were two different people. There was the Judas on the outside, and there was a different Judas on the inside. Who other people thought of him was different from who he really was. 
People thought he could be trusted when in reality, uh, the inner Judas could not be trusted. He was faithful in a way on the outside, but on the inside, he was not trusting in the Lord. People thought he was spiritual. People thought he was a true disciple when he was not. And we're going through this series on the disciples of Jesus Christ, taking a look at Peter and James and John and taking a look at, at the other disciples. And when you see Judas being a part of this group and noting, you know what, this individual was different from the others, I think the lesson we can learn is being a disciple of Jesus requires that those two people, the inner Judas and the external or outer G Judas, be the same person. For us to be a real disciple of Jesus means we can't just act the part on the outside, we have to be the part on the inside. We have to have that on the inside. Discipleship requires that your inner man and your outer man to match. And so as we kind of conclude this series, taking a look at Judas and, and a closing out the series on looking at all of the disciples, we have to ask the question, who are you? Who are you really? Now, I know what you look like, and I know whether you come to the church services, and, you know, there's probably some, you know, we definitely have some record of whether you give, and, you know, whether you're participating in the offerings. I can see whether you, you know, come to some service and, and to participate in a ministry. I could see even if you lead a ministry, you lead a class, you teach a class, you lead some aspect of the ministry here. I can see all of those things, but I can't see who you really are. I can see that maybe at the right times and in a service, you know, somebody might, you know, say amen and somebody, you know, might uh, be in their place right at the right time and, and say all the right things, carry the right version of the Bible and dress up in a nice suit and, and uh, look all nice and all of those things. But being a disciple requires more than you just put on a suit. Being a disciple requires more than just showing up to church services on a Sunday morning. Being a disciple requires more than just putting something into the offering plate every week. Being a disciple means you really have to answer the question, who are you? And I can't answer that question for you. I don't know who you really are on the inside. Sometimes people say things, but deep inside, you know, they're thinking, do I really believe that? Only you would know what you really think and what you really believe and who you really are. So discipleship requires us to have that inner man and the outer man to match and to be able to honestly answer the question, who are we, who am I, and who are you? I want to see three internal aspects of Judas that outsiders could not see, but really kept him from being a true disciple of Jesus Christ. The first of which is Judas never trusted in the Savior. In the passage that we read earlier, Jesus had given some hard sayings, and it was because of these hard sayings that some of the disciples began to turn away from following after Jesus Christ. Jesus had said some things, they were like, I don't know if I can believe that, I don't know, really know if I could do that, I, I, I don't know if I could continue to follow this Jesus Christ, if that's what he's going to say, if that's what he wants for us to do, I don't know if I could do that. And some of the disciples began to turn away, so many that Jesus turned to his own 12 disciples that he had handpicked and said, are you also going to go away? I mean, we would expect that you guys would be here, but are you even tempted to go away? That's what he says in verse number 67. We read the verses here. Will ye also go away? Then Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. It's a great response of Peter. 
if we stop from following you, who would we follow? Where else could we go? What's a better thing to do than to follow you? You are the ones with eternal life. And we believe and are sure that thou art that Christ, the son of the living God. Peter, speaking on behalf of all of the disciples, says, we believe that you are the son of God, that you are the Christ. Jesus' response, though, is Jesus answered them, have not I spoken unto you twelve, and one of you is a devil? He spake of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for he it was that should betray him, being one of the twelve. If you actually back up a couple of verses to verse number 64, even before he asks the question to the twelve, he says, but there are some of you that believe not. Jesus knew in his group of disciples, or at least what we might call his group of disciples, there were some that did not believe. There were some who were there in body, but not really there in spirit. They really didn't have faith in Jesus Christ. And although Judas was surrounded by disciples, I mean, Judas was surrounded by people like Peter and James and John and Andrew and Philip and Matthew, these disciples of Jesus Christ who later would go on and preach the gospel in all sorts of parts of the world and see people to be saved. Even though Judas was surrounded by these disciples, he had not yet put his faith in Jesus Christ. Having not put his faith in Jesus Christ, he could not be saved from his sins. He was still in his sins, not having put his faith in Jesus Christ. Because spending time around disciples doesn't save you from your sins. Attending church services doesn't save you from your sins. Dressing up for church services doesn't save you. Serving in a ministry doesn't save you from your sins. Giving to the offering doesn't save you from your sins. Being baptized doesn't save you from these things. Judas probably had all of those things. He was probably serving and getting involved and showing up and being there. He was probably baptizing other people. Remember, Jesus himself didn't baptize, but it was his disciples. I imagine Judas was probably one of those that was baptizing other people. Judas was one you could count on. If there was something going on in the ministry of Jesus Christ, Judas was going to be there. You could count on Judas showing up and being present at all of these different events. You think about all of the miracles and all of the teachings and all of the places that Jesus went. Judas was there. You could count on Judas to be ready and available and serving and all of these things. But Judas never trusted in Jesus Christ as his Savior. And that is the tragedy. That the Savior of the world was right there with him every day for three years and he didn't put his trust in Jesus Christ. And the tragedy of some lost soul here today is that you could be so close to the Savior and not be saved. You could have that Bible in your hands, you could hear about Jesus Christ, you could know that Jesus saves, but if you do not put your trust in Jesus Christ, there will be a great tragedy because you are still in your sins. Don't trust in your church attendance. Don't trust in your baptism. Don't trust, hey, I'm involved in some ministry. I'm leading a ministry. I'm teaching a class. None of those things is faith. 2 Corinthians 13, verse number 5 says, Examine yourselves, whether ye you be in the faith. Prove your own selves. Know ye not your own selves, how that Jesus Christ is in you, except ye be reprobates? Here is Paul encouraging 
asking the believers, hey, examine yourselves, test your faith, and know whether or not Christ lives within you because the Bible says all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one of us to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. See, we're all sinners. We all turned our own way. We all left the Lord. We all left the word of God. We have all disobeyed the law of God. But the Bible says that God laid on Jesus Christ the iniquity of us all. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth on him should not perish but have everlasting life. See, there's no substitute for putting your faith in Jesus Christ. Only putting your faith in Jesus Christ will save you from your sins. Jesus Christ, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, he says in, in Matthew chapter 7, he says, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say unto me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? Oh, Lord, God, Jesus, did, didn't we preach the word of God? Didn't we tell others what the Bible said? Didn't we teach the word of God? And in thy name have cast out devils? In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, didn't we cast out devils from other people? And in thy name done many wonderful works? God, uh, we, we served in your name. We, we gave to the offering in your name. And we, we had these big events in your name. And the Bible says in verse 23, Then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. The question is, do you have that relationship with God? Do you know God? And does God know you? There's no substitute for that relationship. Judas, though he was close to Jesus Christ every single day, year after year, never trusted in Jesus Christ, never was saved from his sins, and was never a real disciple of Jesus Christ. Peter said, we believe, we believe that you're the Messiah. But Jesus himself said, there are some among you that don't believe. And Judas was one of those. The second internal aspect of Judas that maybe we couldn't see on the outside, but that prevented him from being a true disciple, is that Judas was never transformed spiritually. If you go over to John chapter number 13, we're going to take a look at a couple verses there. You're there in John chapter number 6. If you go forward a couple of chapters to John chapter 13. In John chapter 13, Jesus is about to partake of the Passover. But before he does, he's going to wash the feet of the disciples. And washing the feet is something that you would have done before you walked into a house, right? You know, back in the days of Jesus, they didn't have Nike tennis shoes. And they didn't have nicely paved roads. And they didn't have, you know, street sweepers coming down every single week. You know, they wore sandals. And they had dirt roads. And so whenever you stepped outside of the house, your feet got dirty. You know, it's just inevitable. And so they would get dirty. And before you would walk into a house, you would want to wash your feet. Because all of the dust and dirt would accumulate. So you would walk in and typically a servant would take a bowl and, and, a, and a towel of some sort. And uh, wash your feet and dry your feet before you entered into the house. In this case, though, instead of a servant, it's Jesus. Jesus is the one that is going to wash the feet of the disciples. And so he goes one by one, and the disciples are having their feet to be washed. And when Peter, it's Peter's turn, he says, don't wash my feet. Peter thinks, this is not appropriate that my leader washes my feet. It should be one of the servants that washes my feet. That's what he's thinking. 
But Jesus says, if you won't allow me to wash your feet, then you have no part with me. He says, if you're not going to let me wash your feet, then you're not part of this. And Peter says, okay, then wash also my hands and my head. And Jesus says in response, in verse number 10, Jesus saith unto him, he that is washed needeth not save to wash his feet, but is clean every whit. And ye are clean, but not all. For he knew who should betray him, therefore said he, ye are not all clean. So the, the bigger lesson here is that you get saved once, but after you get saved, if you sin against the Lord, you need to restore that relationship, right? A relationship similar to like marriage. I, don't, I only got married once to my wife. If I make a mistake and I say something wrong and there's a rift between us, I don't ask her to marry me again. We're already married, but I have to restore that relationship, right? And so that's kind of a similar picture here. What he's saying is you get saved once. You don't get saved over and over and over again. Just like I don't get married to my wife over and over and over again. When I got married, I got married and we are now married and that's it. There's no getting married again. There's no all of that. We're married. We are one. We are united. But that relationship still matters. We have, we could have a good relationship. We could have a bad relationship. We could have a close relationship. We could have a distant relationship. And of course, being married, we want a close relationship. We want a good relationship. That's the picture here. You are cleansed once from your sins, but as you live, you still have the battle between the flesh and the spirit. And as if you give in to your flesh and you commit sins, then you need to get that restoration back from the Lord. So that's kind of the lesson here. But Jesus here says, ye are clean, but not all. One of you is not clean. One of you, you don't just need to restore the relationship. We've never had the relationship. You've never trusted in me. You've never been born again. And there's a big difference in the Christian life between doing and being. Because a lot of people can do religious things, but Christianity is about being a child of God. Recently, my family and I, we went to Tanaka Farms down in, in Orange County. And uh, so I, there's two kind of parts to this, this farm. There's another section that we had actually gone to earlier. And uh, they were supposed to have these big sunflowers and corn maize and stuff like that. And we were going to take our kids. And so we did. We went and took our kids. But apparently it had been so hot and different weather things. And so a lot of the sunflowers had died. And so, you know, we went over there. And the plants were still there. But the sunflowers were not looking so great. But we still had a good time. It was still fun for our little kids and things like that. They picked some flowers and we went home. Uh, but I guess a lot of people were disappointed. And so uh, the, the farm said, hey, you know, we feel kind of bad that you went and maybe it wasn't the experience you expected and, you know, it's not what we wanted to give you. And so uh, we'll give you free tickets to go to uh, the main farm and you could go on this rag and wide and pick some vegetables and things like that. And so we're like, hey, you know, great. You know, our kids would like that. And so this past week we went down there. And so we went over there in this big wagon ride. You, you climb onto this wagon and they kind of give you this little tour of the farm and they kind of drive around the farm. And so we were driving around and then they stop in the middle and they say, all right, we're going to pick some vegetables. And so we picked uh, just whatever was there and they gave us uh, 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 the opportunity to pick uh, cilantro. Uh, we were able to pick uh, turnips. We were able to pick uh, kale. 
and we were able to pick one other thing, green onion. So we were able to pick, pick these different things, and uh, uh, the one that surprised me the most was kale, uh, because I don't know what I was expecting, but I thought kale kind of grew like maybe lettuce or something, you know? It's just a little whatever leafy thing. Uh, but when I saw the kale plants, I was a little surprised. I was like, you know, in my mind, I was thinking, these look like little mini palm trees, you know? They're like these little things, and it's kind of got the stalk that goes up kind of like a little bit of a palm tree, and at the top, you have all of the kale leaves. And I was like, this is not what I expected at all, but okay, all right, cool. And so we picked all of the kale, and we had all of these things, and you have all of these different plants. And so, you know, as we walked by, we, you know, uh, there was a, a, a field of these different plants. And so my wife was asking, you know, you know, what are these plants? And so the lady was like, oh, these are blackberries. And uh, so, you know, it had just rained recently, and when it rains, I guess, you know, the, the, the fruit gets uh, mildewy really quickly, they go bad really fast, or something like that, and so uh, there was nothing really there, but, you know, you, you could kind of see there's some little fruit that was still there and, and things like that, and you have all of these different plants that grow these different fruits or grow these different vegetables or, you know, they have the roots or things that are in the ground that you could pull up. And the tour guide would take us to each of these places and say, all right, we're going to pick turnips over here. All right, now we're going to go to the cilantro field and things like that. And you can pull one of these things up. And the tour guide know, knew exactly where the turnips were because he knew exactly where, well, the turnip plants were, right? Because if you want turnips, what do you need? You need turnip plants. Now, that sounds obvious to us because you can't have cucumber plants producing turnips, right? What do cucumber plants give you? They give you cucumbers. Turnip plants give you turnips. And it doesn't matter how many turnip plants you put around a cucumber plant, it will not give you turnips. It's going to give you cucumbers. Why? Because it's a cucumber plant, right? <laughs> you can't make it a turnip plant by surrounding it with other turnip plants. It will be a cucumber plant and give you cucumber fruit. It doesn't matter whether you staple some turnip leaves onto the cucumber plant. It doesn't matter if you paint it the same color. It doesn't matter if you put a label there that says this is a turnip plant because it is a cucumber plant. It will always give you the same fruit. And sometimes people think, well, I go to church and I'm surrounded by Christians. That means I must be a Christian too. Oh, well, I, I, I participate in some of these things, and so that means I must be a Christian too. Jesus told Nicodemus, a religious leader, a Pharisee in John chapter 3, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus didn't say give money to the church and you'll see the kingdom of God. He didn't say be baptized and you'll see the kingdom of God. Serve in a ministry and you'll see the kingdom of God. He said you must be born again. You must be born into the family of God because being a child has nothing to do with what you do. Being a child is just being a child. My child is my child no matter what she does because she's my child and nothing she does can change that. And it doesn't matter how much another kid acts like my child that doesn't make them my child, right? Now, my kid does all of the things that you would expect my kid to do. My kids come up to me and call me dad, right? Dad, you know, I'm hungry. Dad, I want this. Dad, can I do that? Dad, can I do that? Okay, let's say some other random kid thinks, oh, 
Brother Richard seems like a great dad. I want him to be my dad. And so he's going to start calling me dad. And so some kid just comes up to me and says, dad, dad. I'm going to be like, I think you've got the wrong person. I'm not your dad. Says, no, 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 you're my dad. You're my dad. No, I'm not. I'm not your dad. You know, and it'll be very confusing. And he might think, oh, if I call him dad, he's going to be my dad. Well, it doesn't matter how many times he calls me dad. I'm still not his dad. It doesn't matter if he thinks, oh, you know what, if I, you know, for my kids, if they want to eat candy, they got to ask permission from me. And somebody might look at my kids and, and realize, oh, anytime they eat candy, they go to mom or dad, they go to dad and they ask, can I have candy? Oh, that must be what, you know, Brother Richard's kids do. I want to be Brother Richard's kid. So every time he has candy, he runs up to me and he says, dad, can I have candy? I'm like, I don't know why you're asking me. Go find your dad, you know, I'm not your dad. You know, go find your dad and ask him. I'm not your dad. And so, you know, it sounds so obvious that, well, you're not my kid no matter what you do. No matter how many times you call me dad, that doesn't make me your dad. It doesn't matter how many times you pray to God. You might call him God. You might call him father. But if you're not born again, he's not your father. If you've not been born again into the family of God, he's still not your dad doesn't matter how many times you look at some other Christians and you see some of the things that Christians do. You say, oh, Christians, they go to church on Sunday mornings. Maybe I should do that. Oh, on, on Sundays, they, they pass around an offering plate. They put an offering into the plate. Oh, maybe that's what I should do. Oh, I see that after somebody gets saved, they get baptized. Oh, maybe I should be baptized. And it doesn't matter how many times you do all of these things. It doesn't matter how many times you try to call God your father. Unless you are born again, you are not a part of the family. It's not about doing all of those things. It's about being a part of the family of God. And you must be transformed, born again, into the family of God to be what we call today a Christian. The Bible uses a number of different illustrations to describe to us the difference between lost and saved. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature, Old things have passed away. Behold, all things are become new. What God says is when you get saved, you are a new creature. You are a different person because God made you a different person. John chapter 3, we saw this earlier. Except a man be born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. God says you have to be born into the family of God. We have a new identity, Ephesians chapter 5, verse number 8, for you were sometimes darkness, but now are ye light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. What could darkness possibly do to become light? The, answer, the question doesn't have an answer because darkness can't do anything to become light, right? Darkness is the opposite of light, right? Darkness is there is no light. You cannot become light. You are darkness. And God, understanding, lost and saved. If you are in darkness, you are in darkness. You don't slowly transform yourself into becoming light. What God does is when he saves you, he changes you from darkness to light, from lost to saved, from death to life. And that's the transformation that Judas never had. The third thing that we see about Judas is that Judas never totally surrendered. We're really taking a look at discipleship. And in John chapter number 12, we see this passage 
where we're going to take a look at Judas, but really we're going to take a look at another individual there. Because as we think about Judas, it's going to be harder and harder for us to really kind of put together some lessons we can learn about discipleship because he never trusted in Jesus Christ to begin with. But John chapter number 12 gives us a great opportunity for us to compare Judas with another disciple. When you think about the disciples, you often think about Peter, James, and John. But I'm going to call this person a disciple. As far as I can see, the Bible never calls this person a disciple. But when you take a look at the life of this person, I think this individual is a disciple. This person is Mary. So we're going to take a look at Mary and compare her with Judas. Verse number one says, then Jesus, six, uh, then Jesus, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, which had been dead, whom he raised from the dead. There they made him a supper, and Martha served. But Lazarus was one of them that sat at the table with him. Then took Mary a pound of ointment of spikenard, very costly, and anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the odor of the ointment. Then saith one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, which should betray him, why was not this ointment sold for 300 pence and given to the poor? This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the bag and bare what was put therein. See, taking a look at Judas and comparing him with Mary, I think we could see this difference between surrender in discipleship. And we see that surrender in Mary in her sacrifice. Because the sacrifice of Mary was quite substantial. The Bible says here that she took a pound of ointment of spikenard. And spikenard was a fragrant oil. It came from the roots and stem of an herb found in northern India. And so it would have been quite rare and also very expensive. And so these you know, the, uh, the disciples that were there, Judas, estimated it to be worth 300 pennyworth, 300 pence, or 300 days wages. So if you think about 300 days wages, you kind of, you know, roughly estimate, it's about how much a person would make in a year, right? Usually we think about uh, dollarly, you know, wages, you know, or hourly wages, how much I make in an hour. I make $15 an hour. I make $25 an hour. But in those days, they would talk about how much money you made in a day. And 300 penny or pence was 300 days wages. So imagine Mary having this bottle of ointment that was valued at the average person's yearly wage. So I don't know what the yearly wage is here. Um, I'm just going to make up a round number. Let's say it's $50,000. So here is Mary with this bottle of ointment that was worth $50,000. And these uh, ointments would be transported in these uh, containers, uh, these alabaster boxes that were kind of made of stone. And there'd be kind of a vase and there'd be like a narrow neck at one end. And so it would allow for you to transport it. And when it, you know, arrived, when you wanted to use it, you would be able to break the neck and you will be able to pour it out on whatever you were, you were going to pour it on. And so here is Mary. She takes this, you know, for lack of a better term, $50,000 ointment, perfume, if you will, and she breaks it and she pours it out on the feet of Jesus and she anoints the feet of Jesus. So here are these disciples 
that are sitting around this table. They're around the table where Jesus is. Mary comes up behind, anoints the feet of Jesus. And what is the reaction? The reaction is, you know, whoa, I can't believe that you spent so much money on all of these different sorts of things. Which, if you and I were there, we might be a little shocked as well. So what prompted Mary to make a sacrifice like this? Because $50,000 is a lot of money. It's not like Mary was a wealthy individual. She probably was quite average and ordinary and, and, and all of those things. And I think we find the answer there in verse number one. Verse number one says, Then Jesus, uh, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, which had been dead, whom he raised from the dead. There they made him a supper, and Martha served, but Lazarus was one of them that sat at the table with him. Then took Mary a pound of ointment of spikenard, very costly, and anointed the feet of Jesus. See, in John chapter 11, Lazarus had died. And Mary, we know, was weeping. She was grieving over the death of her brother. Jesus comes and he raises Lazarus from the dead. And in the very next chapter, here is Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, and the disciples, and Jesus all there together. And Lazarus is sitting at the table there with Jesus. Imagine Mary being there in the room, looking at her brother who was dead and is now alive, and looking over at Jesus, the reason why Lazarus was still there why Lazarus was now alive. And I can imagine that as she's looking at Lazarus and looking at Jesus and looking at Lazarus and looking at Jesus, thinking, I want to do something for Jesus. I want to do something for Jesus because of what Jesus did for me. And he, she was thinking about, Jesus is the one who brought my brother back to life. What could I do for Jesus? And so she took this pound of uh, ointment and broke it and anointed the feet of Jesus. Because it's easier to sacrifice when you remember that you've already received. You know, if I were to walk into the congregation, I would just ask a random person here, hey, can I have a $100? Some of you might hesitate. <laughs> hey, can I have a $100? Uh, sure. Uh, what do you need it for? <laughs> you know? Like, you might hesitate about, like, oh, $100? $100 is a lot of money. It's not a dollar. It's not $5. It's not $10. $100? Well, it's you know, getting up there, it's worth a lot of money. But it would be a totally different situation if I walked up to you and said, you know, I really appreciate you. You know, I really love you. And I just want to do something for you. Here, have $1,000. And I gave you $1,000. And I began to walk away and I said, oh, wait, actually, you know what? I forgot. Actually, I need $100. Can I have $100? You wouldn't be like, uh, wait, what do you need it for? <laughs> right? You would be much more inclined to say, well, he just gave me $1,000. Sure, I could give him $100 back, right? That's not a big deal, right? When we first receive and then we give out, it doesn't really seem like a sacrifice, right? Because I, I, he's not asking me for mine. He gave it to me. And I'm really giving him what is his. When we think about all that Jesus has given to us first, it's easier for us to give and to sacrifice. For us to realize, you know, God's not asking me for anything that he hasn't already given me. You know, I think when you think about full-time ministry, sometimes people are like, you know, the fear is, oh, you know, God wants me to give up my life. I have to give up my life for the Lord. Well, God gave you your life. Amen? <laughs> right? God gave you those things. Oh, you know what? I'm going to have this opportunity to, I'm going to lose this opportunity. And God's like, 
Well, I gave you that opportunity. I could give you another opportunity. Or how about this? Matthew chapter 16, verse 26, for what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? How much money would you pay to not go to hell and instead go to heaven? Is it worth $1,000 to you? Is it worth $10,000 to you? Is it worth a million dollars to you? I mean, the point is that salvation is priceless, right? We would pay everything that we had in order to avoid hell and go to heaven, and God gave it to us for free. He gave us eternal life. And so Mary here in this situation, in giving this ointment, everybody else is thinking about what she's giving. Mary, though, in that moment is not thinking about what she's giving. You know what she's thinking about? She's thinking about what she got. She got her brother back. Something that she could not pay for with this ointment. And she just wanted to give something to the Lord. Contrast that with Judas, who says, in verse number four, then saith one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, which should betray him. Why was not this ointment sold for 300 pence and given to the poor? You know what he's thinking about? He's thinking about the cost. He's thinking about, oh, you had to give up all of these things. Whereas Mary's not thinking about what she's given up. She's thinking about what she's gotten. And that's a totally different attitude between, between disciples. Here is Judas, a non-disciple. He's thinking about the cost. Here is Mary, a real disciple. She's not thinking about the cost. You know what she's thinking about? She's thinking about what she got already. So we see her total surrender in her sacrifice. We also see it in her service in verse number three. Then took Mary a pound of ointment of spikenard, very costly, and anointed the feet of Jesus. And then the Bible says, and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the odor of the ointment. The Bible describes in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, if a woman have long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given her for a covering. So God describes this hair as glorious. And Mary is taking what is glorious and using it in service. And sometimes Christians can have a hard time giving up that thing that they're very proud about their reputation, their financial situation, how people look at them and how they are perceived or whatever the case might be, the opportunities that they've had and all of that sort of thing. And it can be hard for them to give that up in service to the Lord. But it's easier for us to realize that we can give up what is glorious to us when we realize in Philippians chapter 2 that Jesus gave up the glories of heaven for us. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Here is Jesus willing to humble himself as a servant for us. That will make it easier for us to realize, you know what? Jesus served us with his life. Maybe I could serve him with mine. Contrast that with Judas, though. Judas says in verse number five, why was not this ointment sold for 300 pence and given to the poor? You know what Judas is saying? Judas is saying, Mary, why did you do that? Mary, why did you do it that way? You could have been so much better if you did it this way, if you did it my way. You know what Judas was very comfortable doing? 
he was very comfortable telling other people how they should serve. You notice Judas wasn't giving anything for Jesus. You notice Judas wasn't washing the feet of Jesus. You notice Judas wasn't doing any of the service there for Jesus. He was just sitting there and enjoying things, and he was not serving others. It reminds me of the Pharisees, where they bind heavy burdens and grievous to be borne and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. See, Judas was very comfortable letting other people do the work. Judas was very comfortable telling others how they should do the work, but you notice that Mary was very willing to humble herself and, and to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. Thirdly, what we see is her sight. So you have to remember the context here. The context here is that Lazarus was dead, he was buried for four days, and then he rises from the dead. Okay? That shows up in the morning papers, okay? Everybody's going to know about this. And the Bible says here in the next chapter that Jesus comes to Bethany and Lazarus is there. So Mary is there, Martha is there, Lazarus is there, the disciples are there, Jesus is there. So you can imagine when people hear, oh, Lazarus is here and Jesus is here, people want to see what's going to happen, <laughs> right? They want to be there. And so there are other people there, actually, beyond just the ones that are there that we read about. And you can read that uh, later in the, in, in the chapter. So you have all of these people here. And so you can imagine Jesus is there. Judas is there. Peter is there. James is there. Pharisees are there. You know, uh, friends are there. Other people are there. And so this is a very public act of sacrifice and service. This was not something done where, you know, maybe if she was a little bit shy or timid, maybe done it in secret or private, where, you know, not a lot of attention is given to her. In this case, though, everybody's looking at her. Everybody notices her. When you break that bottle of perfume, everybody notices. If you weren't paying attention, you are now paying attention, you know? You know, somebody puts, you know, cologne on or perfume here, and they just kind of walk by. You notice, right? Imagine a pound of perfume being poured out at the same time. The whole room is smelling of this perfume. Everybody notices. And Judas very publicly criticizes her in front of everybody. Mary would have known somebody's probably going to say something. They're probably going to say, I'm being reckless, I'm being wasteful. She must have known that, right? Because you're going to do it in front of everybody. But the fact that she still did it tells us she didn't care what they thought. Her focus was not on the other disciples. Her focus wasn't on maybe the Pharisees or whoever else was there in the room. Her focus wasn't on some family members or friends that were there. You know, her only focus was on Jesus. She wasn't looking at what other people were doing. She wasn't looking at and thinking about what other people would say. She only thought about, Jesus gave me back my brother. I want to do something for him. And that was the only thing that she cared about. And Jesus responded in kind, saying in verse 7, Let her alone against the day of my burial has she kept this. For the poor always have ye, but me ye have not always. See, Jesus was glad for the service of Mary. She was happy, or Jesus was happy to know that she 
gave this for him. And really, as disciples, our focus can't be on other people and what other people are saying and what other people are thinking. Our focus needs to be on Jesus. Galatians chapter 1, For do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I yet please men, I should not be the servant of Christ. Furthermore, then we beseech you, brethren, and exhort you by the Lord Jesus, that as ye have received of us how ye ought to walk and to please God, so ye would abound more and more. So as we conclude this study on Judas, really the lesson is who we are on the inside has to be who we are on the outside for us to be a disciple. You must trust in Jesus Christ. You must be transformed by the Lord. And then you must totally surrender. And it'll be easier for us to remember, hey, God has given to me so much already. God has served me so much already. And that allows for us to return uh, to the Lord our acts of service in discipleship.